Fire up the coffee machine, everybody. We are at it again. Artist Journal, January 25th, 2023, broadcasting live from Berlin and New York City on Rug Radio via Twitter Spaces. If anybody wants to speak or join the stage, simply hit the request, and either Runetune or I will bring you on board. And again, Runetune is in an airport on his way to Portland to visit a friend. So he is getting around. And yeah, I see Mech TXT and Purple Drank is back. Son of Stag, Niku, Joe, and I see Jules and Tornado. This is awesome. So, and I think Magic is here too. So we have a very interesting topic here today. It's one that's kind of hit me. It's, I guess it's particularly relevant to me, but what was interesting was when I kind of tweeted this topic out, I think everybody kind of has something to say for the most part. I mean, artists aren't simply influenced by visual arts. It's also writing, you know, and in my case, it was kind of a weird situation where like I, I was always kind of, you know, into art and I was always thought of myself as an artist, even got into comics when I was a teenager, but then as a, you know, older teenager, when I hit 16, I sort of got introduced to a lot of writers, you know, a lot of the counterculture, you know, Hunter Thompson, William Burroughs, J.G. Ballard, and all that. And what was so interesting for me about that was I went to art school, and after being exposed to a lot of those writers, I found that art school, frankly, wasn't giving me the, you know, the intellectual food, the brain food, that I wanted. So I ended up doing, you know, studying English literature after four years of art school and kind of actually halfway through, I kind of started it, did a double degree and did a master's in English on the atrocity exhibition by J.G. Ballard. All, all to say, kind of the irony of that is Ballard's biggest influences were the surrealists, were visual artists. And here I was an artist uh, and my biggest influences was a writer, J.G. Ballard. So it's kind of a full circle thing. So yeah. So anyways, that's my story. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to go deeper into that. But I actually want to hear from other people. Runtune, you know, it's funny, the uh, philosophical angle, you know, like, weirdly, I mean, I got so kind of, it's kind of, you know, just to go into a tiny bit of detail, I, like I mentioned in like 50, 100 episodes ago, I, I almost ended up doing a master's in Neoplatonism. And I sort of came under the influence of one of these classics professors he was a actually one of the probably top plotinus scholars in the world and of course plotinus is kind of seen as i don't know if you'd call him the founder of neoplatonism but anyways he had these unbelievable speeches that he would make and i was ready to do a master's with that guy and uh, just go off you know and really just go down the rabbit hole you know and i never ended up doing it i mean you know quick you know I, I worry saying this with my mom probably listening at some point, but I was doing a lot of mushrooms at the time. And I tell you, Neoplatonism and the, you know, Terence McKenna, I mean, it all came together for me. He called them the psychedelic philosophers, the Neoplatonists. And I was kind of doing a little bit of mushrooms at that point and studying the Neoplatonism. And I was kind of agreeing. So I almost got kind of whisked away, but fate would have it, he ended up getting a job in, where was it? Some very nice school in the U.S., research chair, gets paid to think, really. And so he got whisked away, and it kind of just, uh, I just kind of drifted off and did English. So anyways, I, all for the best, I think, because I don't think I'd be happy as a, you know, classic scholar. Um, but anyway, all to say, yeah, you know, it's kind of the age, where you get influenced by that sort of thing too, you know, philosophy when you're like 18 to 22. And that's what you see in the Platonic dialogues are these like, you know, Socrates talking to the youth, you know, and all that sort of thing. So anyways, a kind of long roundabout way of saying, yeah, I kind of fell under that 
spell too, as I think it's easy to do at that age. And just a reminder to everybody, the room's filling up here. I see Sabato out there and Dr. Version. Feel free to request to be on stage. I'll send out a few invites here too. And uh, come share your story on how writing has impacted your art practice. And for me, it was the artistic vision. You know, it was probably primarily uh, Ballard and his, again, what I love about J.G. Ballard, and I still think he's one of the most important writers, still somewhat underrated of the 20th century, was he kind of systematized surrealism. He kind of took surrealism and really explained it in such a way that he almost transformed. Uh, like, I mean, he, he, you know, like as he wrote in an essay, I think The Coming of the Unconscious, maybe, you know, this isn't pure psychic automatism, as Andre Breton said. This is, you know, where, as he defined it, where inner and outer space meet and fuse, you know. So for him, it was a very real thing. Uh, so anyways, does anybody else uh, have anything to say here? I, I've just sent out an invite to Sabato and Joe Rogan's dad and everybody. And hey, there's Haiti Rocket. I know some people can't talk because they are out uh, or they're on a computer or whatnot. As we're waiting for people to join, Runetune, were there any novelists that really impacted you? Like for me, it was kind of like in terms of sentiment and just kind of like, you know, William Burroughs was a huge influence on me, The Third Mind, more than actually his writing, which I do, you know, I have mixed feelings about, let's put it that way. But were there any novelists for you that, uh, that interest you? I will invite mech.txt here. You know, as you're mentioning how horror kind of incorp can incorporate so many of these other things, you know, I was thinking of Edgar Allan Poe as well, you know, and that's a great, you know, great novelists incorporate a lot of philosophy and just a lot of just interesting factoids where you're kind of learning along the way. Uh, and so that was super interesting. And in terms of uh, Hunter Thompson, it was sort of like, you know, to your point, it's sort of like, you know, turning life into art, you know, just by virtue of his perspective. It's almost like a, a novelist of real life, if you, you know, to it, just putting his style and his character and everything, his inner space and applying it to the external world. Uh, so that's super interesting, Runetune. Uh, Mech.txt, good to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you very much for uh, making me come up here. But I'm just going to be very brief. Uh, I think Runtun, you are a bit drugged right now. So I can actually hear you when I'm a speaker, but when I'm a listener, uh, your voice is non-existent, I think. So for the rest of us in, in the audience and the listener, we, we couldn't really hear you. And I, I would recommend highly to, to re-enter the space maybe. That would fix it, um, hopefully. Uh, just that. <laughs> I can hear you loud and clear, but it's on my speaker. So who knows? Uh, if you want to try, you can exit and come back in. And uh, OK, awesome. Uh, Mech, do you have anything to say about our topic at hand? Uh, it's You're in Indonesia, if I remember correctly. Uh, were any writers influenced on you, if, if you have time to speak? Well, yeah, uh, thank you. Yes, I'm from Indonesia. And um, for writings, maybe my my biggest influence, at least for me in the last two weeks, is Harlan Ellison. The uh, I have no mouth, but I I must scream. I think that influences me very very well. Hence, my artworks has been turning into the more you know dark and gritty uh, kind of a theme. And yeah, I do value the a good writing in in artworks, especially so not only that you serve the visual, but I think the narration itself, like the writings and the, the caption, like in Zankan's work, I think um, there's a couple of Zankan's, Zankan's work that I really do connect with, with the caption, not the artwork itself, you know, because I think um, writing is that important for making a connection with the artist, especially. And you've been doing pixel art. Uh, so tell me like and you're very disciplined with it if you have time were you doing art beforehand or was it something that that you came to recently uh i've been i've been doing design graphic design mostly in 12 years maybe uh there's actually my partner 
my studio partner here, Tito.png, down there. And yeah, we've been we've been making this one graphic design studio in Indonesia, and it's been uh, 12 years for now. So I'm not really a stranger into creating, you know, like creative, creative thing. I, I wouldn't say it like art, you know, because I'm serving the purpose of my clients. But only now in, in Web3, I actually went into, you know, listening to my own voice and trying to make something that's for myself. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. That's fascinating. And uh, I could imagine that. And I find the Web3 space is actually quite friendly to graphic design uh, in terms of seeing it as art. Like sometimes it's a little trickier out in IRL there, the physical world to kind of, you know, but I, I think, again, like pixel art, it lends itself so well to your work. Thank you, Mac for coming in and helping us with the technical issues. Hopefully Runtoon is back as co-host. And uh, yeah, it's just always great to hear from you. And it feels so international when we're here. We got New York, Berlin, Indonesia, and there is Sabato who is in Massachusetts, if I remember correctly. Real quick, can I just get a thumbs up or thumbs down if people can hear me okay? Good for, Good me. for me too. Okay. All right. It looks like the, uh, it looks like it's working. All right. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Sabato, how are things? All right. How about you? Uh, Doing good. You know, like it's been just so busy. I finally got my taxes done or handed in. Uh, So that's just been like dogging me for weeks and, you know, just cleaning the apartment, trying to stay on top of going to the gym, this sort of stuff and making a little art when I can, you know, so that's basically, that's me. How about you? You know, honestly about the same, I'll probably going to linger on my taxes for a few months. Um, But, but yeah, you know, it's like you make art, you know, you do the, the, the house domestic stuff, you know, do things with the family and rinse and repeat. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love the topic of this show. And I don't know, should I just, should I just get into it? Absolutely. Yeah. By so, well, yeah. Let, let me uh, let me help okay. you uh, by asking you some questions and feel free to take it in whatever direction you want to go. I loved your tweet that you put out yesterday. And I, you know, I'm not surprised that you're kind of, you know, hyped on the topic because I can tell, frankly, from your art that it's very kind of, for lack of a better term, it's very smart art. You know, this is very thoughtful. You can see it in the write-ups. You can see it in the concepts. It's it's crystal clear to me. Uh, so anyways, so so tell me, uh, you know, as far as the writing, how have writers influenced your practice and your artistic vision? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, I think they're, they kind of kind of goes like hand in hand in the way that like writing has, you know, it like informs, you know, maybe not necessarily like, directly like the images you create but no or not always directly but a lot of times kind of like how you create images i was like a political science major in college and i didn't really study much art besides like studying kind of like cultural theory and sort of like media theory i like really wanted to be a a filmmaker when i was young and the college i went to didn't quite have like a film program So I was like, damn, what do I do? And I kind of just settled with political science because I felt like I would get kind of like the best of the humanities. Like you get kind of literature, you get culture, you get history, and um, you get a lot of kind of like theory and philosophy in that too. And so like that, that was kind of like how I nerded out a lot in college. I mean, I read a lot of novels too. And I think a lot of like novelists have like influenced me or they've kind of like influenced me at the time. I think like looking back, like, now from when i was young like one of the authors like fiction authors that like has been a a big influence has been jorge luis borges who's like an argentinian writer um and he mostly wrote short stories and he wrote a lot of metafiction in the sense that like he didn't write full-fledged novels he preferred to write short stories about novels that didn't exist so there was like kind of like this like endless kind of referentiality in his work and it's funny because even like today like last year and i was making art and this year i'm i like you know these stories just keep popping up in my head and last year when the ai thing came out i made a series called the machine recalls the canon which is my the the idea was that i wanted to kind of recreate iconic photographs just using text prompts you know, just kind of trying to describe them and trying to recreate the same image that was, you know, created by like Ansel Adams or uh, Sally Mann or 
Henry Cartier-Bresson or any other kind of, you know, famous iconic photographers. And it was just kind of like this little exercise. It was fun because it's kind of a puzzle to like describe an image and try to like bring it back. But a big influence was a Borges short story called Pierre Menard, author of the Quixote, which is about an author who wanted to write Don Quixote. He's never read it. You know, he has no idea what it's about, but he still wanted to rewrite Don Quixote exactly the same way as Cervantes wrote Don Quixote like 500 years ago. And he like spent like 20 years trying to get the exact same words down. And he manages to like copy like maybe like a few paragraphs from the book over like the course of his lifetime. But in the Borges short story, he like analyzes like these new version of of the Don Quixote by like the new guy and compares it to the Cervantes version. And it's kind of like the same text. He's like doing this like read up of like the two texts are exactly the same, but one was rewritten in the present. And he talks about how much more powerful it is, the the rewritten version of the present because of all like the historical contradictions involved in that. And so that was a big inspiration for me in exploring AI art um, because there is, you know, this kind of like this idea of just like simulating the past and simulating what what has happened. And, you know, in that same vein, like, I think like I've been like really kind of when I was like reading like political science and political theory, like I got really into the works of Walter Benjamin and Baudrillard, Jean Baudrillard. And I kind of see it, you know, like I saw those, like those authors and the way they talked about just culture and the way culture developed was just like, like it really blew my mind when I was in college. And I think that's like one of the things that kind of guided me towards wanting to explore glitch art and wanting to explore new media and wanting to kind of like look at, digital media with a sort of critical, deconstructive eye. Walter Benjamin's The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction for me was, is like, I think for a lot of people, it's kind of like, you know, like one of those like standards about understanding art in modern era, you know, in terms of how he explains how like this idea of the aura of art like has diminished, you know, the more you can reproduce and copy art. And Benjamin's The Author as Producer, I think is also a really great one, especially for all the leftists here who you know you always run into the question about like is art you know is it worthwhile if if art like you know get like if a hollywood movie about like che guevara comes out is it you know is it does it have any revolutionary potential or is it just like a hollywood movie and i think walter benjamin answers is probably one of the few authors that answers that question about content versus form and his whole position is is like well the content's irrelevant the question is is how do you make the art like is the process like is it democratic is it open to other people like is it something that helps other artists grow and i think that kind of message like stuck with me especially as i got into glitch art um because so much of glitch art is very much like this idea that the knowledge of creating artists should be open um the knowledge of digital systems should be open to everyone and so that kind of ethos where it's like you have this this like open source knowledge of how to make the art of how to like use the tools of how things work like was very much like essential in how i grew as an artist over the years and that kind of left you know i'll I'll end here because i know i want other people to talk but yeah that that kind of like brought me to uh to kind of like the writings in within like the glitch art scene and those have like kind of either like informed or validated me throughout the years. Um, like one, like Rosa Mankman. Um, she's like one of the, f- one of the original glitch theorists out there. And um, actually, you know, she, she minted a few of her writings on Tezos. I think they're all on secondary, but them, some of them might be affordable, but her glitch manifesto and vernacular of glitch formats are, were like really kind of, essential in in me kind of learning about glitch art and like the theory behind it and the thought process behind it and the vernacular of glitch formats is really cool because this was like i think she did it in like 2010 2011 but it's just kind of like she listed a bunch of popular file formats and just how they break um and it's a cool kind of like document to explore to look at and to learn from but yeah well before you go anywhere i mean you've given us a whole ton of topics here uh, to to think about now you mentioned Baudrillard and, and Jose was it is it Jose, Jose Louis Borges Did, didn't he write the map and the territory yes he did and then didn't and then that in, didn't that influence or wasn't it quoted or something by Baudrillard like there is this interesting 
line. And I mean, when you mentioned Walter Benjamin, I mean, he's practically a saint out here in Berlin. I mean, it's almost a cliche to go out and there's, oh, there's a talk on Walter Benjamin again. Like I actually, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious out here, actually. So anyway, so it's super interesting. So just to kind of clarify what you're saying a little bit for me, like, so were you saying sort of like some of the things you're seeing with uh, Walter Benjamin and this ethos you're talking about? Was, is that sort of like a way of saying like accessibility is a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. And with regard to like the, the ethos, um, I'm going to do one more name drop. Um, there is a glitch theorist called Nick Breeze, B-R-I-Z. And he has a really great video called Notes on Glitch, where he talks about kind of like the glitch art ethic, which is like, you know, when you as a glitch artist, you're approaching things kind of with a mindset where it's like, I have like this digital media, I live within this digital world, and I want to try to find ways to, you know, subvert or kind of mix things up a bit. And that kind of, you know, I think that that really stuck with me more in terms of how I like you know, how I approach art and how I approach like, you know, especially when I work with glitch or experimental stuff where I'm like looking to see how it breaks or how it like, you know, how, how I can glitch it. But then there's that aspect where it's like, you know, once you figure out, like there is the point of like sharing the process and talking about the process and, you know, teaching other people the, the process too. And that's very much part of that ethic. Um, and that kind of ties in with that like accessibility and so this is super fascinating. So yeah, so on this glitch uh, theory, uh, sort of, so I, you know, if you asked me, are there glitch theorists, I might have said probably, but I actually, you know, it's kind of news to me that there are glitches. Is there a way of kind of encapsulating? Maybe you just did, but like, what are they saying? Uh, like, so basically, is it, if, if I was to guess from what you were saying, basically, it's kind of ethos, kind of almost not too far from Warhol, where it's about kind of taking images that already exist, and kind of, re I don't know if we'd say reappropriating, but kind of disturbing them, shall we say, uh, through whatever means. And that this is kind of a way of maybe relooking and reseeing these common images or take it away if you know i'm sure i'm missing a ton yeah it's it's very much kind of based on that i think i would say this gets sort of like a a kind of writing that kind of came up in the you know post 2000s and there's a few people in the space who are who are involved with that like john cates has been a uh, glitch artist since like the 90s and he's written a lot about just like what i think one of the main issues is like kind of like um describing like what is a glitch like what does a glitch mean in terms of among glitch artists, that was like a point of contention for a long time because there were people like Rosa Mankman tends to be more of a purist, the formalist in terms of how she sees what is and what isn't a, like a glitch. They're looking for, you know, for example, like, is there like a digital apparatus? Is there a malfunction? Is there like, are like, is the malfunction like, does it signify? Do you like create, you know, is it user created or is it like, you know, or is someone just kind of like using the aesthetics of glitch? And there's kind of kind of division of like is glitch like what is real glitch art what is like fake glitch art, and over time what I found is that distinction has kind of dissolved, and I think like uh, you know people who are writing about it are moving towards a more kind of like reader centered theory, like one of one of the biggest glitch theorists is a guy named Michael Betancourt, um, and he's one of the first glitch artists too. He's been doing stuff since like the '80s. Um, but his he's writing a new book on just kind of like glitch art as a movement or just as a thing. And his premise is that what decides glitch art is basically the viewer. Like the viewer understands what it glitches just based on their like, you know, their, their how they live in technology. They read something as glitch because they're so used to that kind of media. Um, and to Michael Betancourt, that's like the starting point of what makes glitch art glitch art. Like does the viewer have this sense that there is like you know that there is a glitch um and so when you you know there's that kind of discussion in the web3 space because you have artists like xcopy and um you know like uxine who do kind of glitchy things you know like they they're drawing very like their their aesthetics are glitchy but from a process base they're not necessarily glitch because they're not breaking media or they're not malfunctioning or creating simulating the environment for an error but I would say Betancourt would, you know, or even I think John Cates too would agree that these, no, these are glitch arts because 
as a viewer, as an audience, a lot of people see the the kind of like the flickering lights and the twitchiness and the colors and be like, oh, this is glitchy, you know, so. That is so interesting. And I totally relate to what you're saying, because, you know, if you were to say, uh, is X copy a glitch artist, my first immediate reaction would be no. But then when you say, oh, well, it's kind of flashing and things are kind of moving around a bit, then you'd be like, oh, yeah. I guess maybe that could be categorized as glitch. Uh, Because again, almost to your point, I almost get the sense like glitch would be something, almost like something being broken or celebrating the errors, you know, like of a VHS, you know, cassette player that's not working properly. Almost like Sky Goodman was describing his beginning into art. I think that was two weeks ago when the World Cup was getting glitched. A great story there. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I kind of vibe with what you're saying. Like, that's kind of how I interpret Glitch, like, as, like, a default. But, you know, like, I'm I'm open to all aesthetics. Like, I don't think it's about gatekeeping, you know, what is and what isn't. And, and yeah, like, yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm, like, taking up all the time in the show. So nope. I do want all to good, all good, all good, come and talk about, like, yeah. books and stuff. So, um and, we'll have and to yeah. make a list of all the names that you dropped because all these all these people, all these writers that you you've been talking about who discuss glitch and all of that, these are these are new these are new names for me. Yeah, I I'll do that. I mean, I'll I'll post after the spaces. I'll just like post it on Twitter and and tag and tag you and, and Adrian. That would be awesome because this is fascinating and it's kind of core to uh you know a lot of what I've been thinking about, I've been putting the show together in Berlin here, just kind of low key, the genres of digital art. And I don't claim that that's, you know, any kind of end statement. It's more of just an opening of a discussion, at least in my own mind, maybe other people have already figured all this stuff out and I was going to do it in this movie theater. And so glitch, of course, is a category. And so, yeah, I never, it's, it's just bringing up all sorts of issues and shows how complicated this is. And to your point, I, I really just agree with, you on a kind of I guess it's just from an ethos perspective it's not about gatekeeping you know it's about like just you know it's not like oh you're not glitch and you are because who cares right I mean the art is the art and that's kind of comes first um but at the same time though I really like the you know these these people who do want to who want to dig deep and 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 be uh and and try and define the boundaries kind of similar to how you uh adrian have been talking about what is pixel art defining pixel art and while i agree with you both like you know it's it's not necessarily about having gatekeepers it's really nice to have someone who's putting in the work trying to challenge our thought uh and what we might already assume you know challenging our assumptions i think a lot of it is just about challenging our assumptions and not necessarily gatekeeping Oh yeah, so absolutely. I, w- no, I, I was talking to Dania, who's Let's Glitch It on on Twitter. We were we kind of exchanging tweets and talking about AI. And I, I brought up was like, well, a lot of us glitch artists have been playing with AI tools since like 2015 with Google Deep Dream and Style Transfer and all those things came out. And Dania pointed out that she was like, well, yeah, everyone posted AI stuff in the glitch artist groups. Like this was like one of the first kind of forums where AI art was widely accepted and wasn't derided or wasn't questioned the way it is now because of, you know, the controversies regarding the training models and stuff. And that goes hand in hand with that idea of gatekeeping. Like, you know, like AI, you could look at an AI and be like, well, this isn't technically a glitch because, you know, it's working as it should even though the images like look liminal and didn't look like formed, you know, it's not like it is now where it's super polished you know in 2015 with deep dream like all it could really create was just like slugs and dogs um but everyone was just making art with that and the glitch idea was that like well it doesn't look right we know this technology isn't perfect but that exploration that just kind of appropriation of the technology and being like we're just going to make our own thing with it and run with this aesthetic i think was one of the main drivers of early ai art um you know before it became like super kind of easy to use and super polished so if anybody wants to join and discuss their influences written influences on their artistic practice and vision do request to speak and we will happily bring you up uh runtun do you have any more questions for sabato otherwise i could throw a couple of pitches 
Are you reading anything interesting at the moment? Good question. You know, not yes and no. Um, I haven't quite like committed to a book. I've read like parts of Michael Betancourt's like new kind of like glitch art thing. Um, that's not out though. So I can't really speak of it. One book actually that I read last year that I thought was great sticking with the glitch art was Legacy Russell's Glitch Feminism. And I think that's like, for people who are interested in glitch art and how it applies to like, you know, if you come from a marginalized community or, you know, if you like this idea of using glitch art to explore like your identity or explore like your place in the world. I really like how legacy Russell kind of talks about glitch in terms of feminism, in terms of using glitch as a visual language to talk about, you know, whether it be like issues regarding the patriarchy or if you're, you know, for queer people talking about, you know, being trans or being queer for me, like I was that, that kind of um, discourse really resonated because I was an undocumented immigrant for many years. And so like, you know, when you have like these sort of identities that are marginalized or like kind of liminal, like being undocumented, like these, you know, glitch becomes like a visual language that is very, that feels like, you know, you like relate to that visual language of brokenness, of malfunction, of things being designed to malfunction or of like, kind of like, you know, turning the malfunctions into perfection, seeing the broken as beautiful, um, like reconstructing from from broken bits, that kind of thing. Um, but that's like a wonderful book, Legacy Russell, Glitch Feminism. It's also very short, so it's an, it's kind of like a breeze to read. You know, it's kind of reminiscent somewhat to the romantics with their central image being like a ruin, you know? And we even see it with like these Michelangelo with these non-finitos and these unfinished, you know, sculptures that, you know, some top scholars think was on purpose. And I mean, that's a little bit different than it being broken, but the ruin you could see as a broken structure. So it's just kind of interesting. It's almost like glitch feels like a very new thing, but maybe it's not as new. Like maybe it's kind of an older idea that's kind of packaged for now, you know, with, okay, we'll use a, we'll put a technological spin on it. And so anyways, it's super interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned your AI work. I mean, it seems like you're, I remember those black and white, which seemed like Ansel Adams uh, photos. And it seemed like you were doing that pretty early. I, I don't know how long it was ago that you were doing that, but those were actually quite remarkable works. Uh, what I remember. I haven't seen them for a while. Yeah, I did them in, was it like late spring of last year when mid journey kind of and Dali just were just kind of blowing up. And then, you know, I think with AI, like I found that my collectors aren't, they like my AI art, but they don't want me just to make AI art all the time. Um, so I noticed that there was kind of like a decrease in, in just like interaction. So I just haven't made, my idea was just like, I keep making it, especially as the algorithms get better. And I kind of returned to it, like when Midjourney version four came out and Stable Diffusion, I did a few, like I took a few photos, like John Baldessari's three basketballs in the air. Like I wanted to try to remake that. And uh, the one about, after Walker Evans by the artist in the eighties, Shirley Levine, Sherry Levine, um, who, who took a picture of Walker Evans picture and showed it. So yeah, you know, I still like want to go back to explore. I just haven't really minted much from that series because I think it just stopped selling. You know, so, um, <laughs> I, I remember that I was actually kind of tracking that a little bit yeah. <laughs> and it was kind of new. You know, like it was kind of new and it was kind of edgy at the time. There wasn't a ton of mid-journey. I was actually pretty impressed with it. I mean, although I didn't bite, like I was still kind of like unsure. And about, you know, that was very early. I mean, ironically, I mean, it's not even a year ago. It's probably like eight months ago. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, I think the series, there's some beautiful works with the trees and maybe, I, yeah, I can't even remember. But uh, there's just, you know, it's kind of memorable, though. It was memorable. Well, thank uh, you. That, yeah. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm submitting it to photo stuff now. I wonder how people, will, if anyone will respond. I think it'd be fun. You know, <laughs> people are like, sure. send us your photographs. And I'm like, oh, yeah, here's some shit I made in AI copying like famous photographs, like on purpose. Um. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so anybody, if anybody else wants to, and thank you, Sabato, actually. Well, thank you for pleasure. having me.
I, I might grill you a little bit more here if you have the time because I'm, yeah, I'm I'm around. You know, I feel bad taking up the whole show. I, I, I want, no, one more people come in and talk feel about bad. their favorite books. You're you're holding the you're keeping the show going here, Sabato, because I yeah, not many biters. I thought there'd be a ton of people that would be I dying think so too. Yeah. So, um, and maybe there are. I mean, I remember when I put out the tweet there. There was already we were starting to get some messages. Anyways, now in terms of say. You know, someone like Baudrillard, I mean, he was very influential and he's very seductive. Jean Baudrillard, the French, you know, I guess he's a Marxist philosopher, but really he was sort of a, again, he was the guy that coined the term the hyperreal, right? And that Mm -hmm. famous book from 1980, I think, Simulations, was it Simulations and Simulacra or Simulation? And he was talking about the He's talking about the World Trade Center being, you know, this kind of central symbol of American power, I think. And if I remember, I mean, it's been 10 or 15 Mm -hmm. years since I read that. Um, So anyway, do you have anything more to say about how Baudrillard kind of influenced you? I mean, yeah, you know, it's funny. Baudrillard, I think, was one of the first philosophers I ever kind of delved into. I was really into The Matrix. The Matrix came out when I was like right in high school. And then the second one, I forget what it was called, came out when I was a senior in high school. So it was like the perfect age when I was like obsessed with the movie. And I wanted, I was like reading about the references, you know, the Matrix had a lot of like embedded references. And one of them was references to Baudrillard, Simulacra and Simulation. And so I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And then I looked him up and he wrote this thing about 9-11, which happened like a year before at the time. It was called The Spirit of Terrorism. Um, and I, I even like made artwork based on it. Like I took the PDF of it and like glitched it like in like 10 years later. But like for me, what I what I really liked how he kind of conceptualized this idea of simulation in terms of just like cultural production. Like to me, it, it very much takes from Benjamin's kind of like the mechanical, um, the work of art and age of mechanical reproduction. Because um, Benjamin talks about a very kind of simple, just like copying, mechanical copying. But Baudrillard takes it to a next level where you're not just like making a physical replica, you're simulating. You're like, you know, it's it's like a step further where the thing creates itself from itself. Um, but one of and- the ideas that I've extracted from from him is that the simulation becomes more real than the real thing. Yes, Exactly. Like the simulation, because it it's simulated, you know, it comes from a code or from like something embedded. Like it it takes a life of its own. And now, you know, with AI, especially with AI art and even glitch art, like glitch art, very much is like you're simulating an error environment. You're simulating the 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 conditions to create a malfunction. To me, I see like a lot of kind of like art in the contemporary age to be operating on that kind of field of simulation, where you're very much like you know like you know, you even take it like, you know, you go on TikTok and you see a lot of pranks. Like, I think that's like a, a, a really popular form of humor right now, like in, in the US. And that's very much like a form of simulation art, right? You're kind of like simulating these conditions where everything goes wrong, you know, and it's just like a joke. You like pull the mask away at the end, you know. It was also like such a perfect kind of philosophy of, of the mass media, too, because in a sense, it kind of spoke to this idea that, you know, the news is almost creating the reality and we're almost back to that map in the territory. And I like one of those essays that just captured the hell out of my imagination was, I think it was the Gulf war never happened or something like that. Or he's basically suggesting that the Iraq war in like 1991 or whenever it was never happened, uh, that it was, you know, kind of like a purely mass media event. And, and of course it did happen, but it kind of spoke you know, it kind of resonated this truth that, you know, we're not really getting the full story and the reality that we are consuming is very much a product of uh, media simulation, a simulation of that reality and that the reality might be, in fact, quite different. But, it, you know, it, as a kind of true surrealist, I, you know, he was a big pataphysics guy. Uh, Baudrillard, right? Like, I mean, he was, uh, he references Alfred Jarry's pataphysics, which, I mean, that's a whole conversation unto itself, uh-huh. the science of imaginary solutions. So that's kind of what I loved about Baudrillard was he was this kind of pataphysician of, you know, this modern day philosopher. And I kind of see pataphysics as kind of, as Jarry himself says, is superinduced on metaphysics, you know, kind of like a, a higher uh, kind of order 
of philosophy. It's uh, above philosophy. It's a, again the the science of imaginary solutions. We're going far out here. Sabato, that's really interesting. I like never thought of him. I'm not. I don't actually know much about pataphysics. Is it just was it a Jari, did Jari like kind of coin the term and was that like his his thing? Yeah, I, I actually wrote a big big essay on this towards the real pataphysics, right? Where I make the case that this is actually the main kind of science. Uh, so he Jari, of course, was a kind of early 20th century, even late 19th century. I think he started in like 1899 or so, uh, and he published, of course, Ubu Hua. Ubu, per, per Ubu, uh, you know, the band and everything. Uh, yeah. Ubu, the, Ubu the King, right? And it's actually kind of a hard read. Like, it's kind of like, it feels like you should be enjoying it more than you should. You know, and he's kind of seen as absurd. Uh, but within this absurdity, and I do rec- highly recommend this book, uh, The Life and Opinions of Dr. Fostrel, Pataphysician. And that is an exciting uh, work. Uh, and Again, it's not perfectly easy to get through, you know, like you kind of have to work through it. In a sense, there is a tedium to some of these works, but don't let that throw you off. I mean, there are some great things in there. And first of all, he offers, I think it's like three definitions of pataphysics, which is very fun. And then he does a kind of a classic, what I'd consider kind of a classic surrealist thing, which is he makes a list of all his favorite influences, and, you know, and if you go to Max Ernst's Beyond Painting, you'll see how, uh, you know, he he also made this kind of collage of all his favorite, you know, influences from Shakespeare to, you know, Lewis Carroll to and then he has writers on one side and artists on the other. So, yeah, Jari is actually, I'd argue, is crucial uh, to the whole Baudrillard discussion, in a sense, and is well worth thinking about and in a weird way, like, I mean, he kind of, you know, put, pataphysics kind of always is sort of seen as this kind of joke philosophy. And there's all these kind of French, you know, Parisian kind of intellectuals that kind of, you know, uh, still continue to celebrate pataphysics. Like I was hanging out with some Parisian or French people a couple of years ago, and they were so impressed that I had heard of Jari and that in fact, (laughs) he was even working on an essay at the time, you know, so He's kind of like this, uh, what would you call it? Like this very, I want to call it like a rich fruit uh, of kind of like of that area and kind of crucial for the whole kind of surrealist, uh, surrealist, uh, you know, philosophy, understanding. And I don't know if that answers your question. I'm kind of rambling at this point. No, it does. Um, Because I've heard of Perubu, not just the band, but the the text. Um, And it's interesting. It's kind of like that, um, you know, that kind of like, blend of fiction and theory that i think is just like really cool it's kind of what i like about borges is that like you know it's very fictional like everything is just kind of like a short story and and stuff but um from it you extract like you can extract the whole theory a whole thought process um like i guess marquis de sade is another one that makes me think of that or that's a really interesting point in the sense like if you look like the you know andre breton had a lot of kind of faults you could say like again like i agree with ballard when he says that surrealism is more than pure psychic automatism you know where it's basically association but one of the really again i, I think i mentioned in an episode like 30 episodes ago is this book that he wrote called black humor i think it was called black humor and it's an excellent uh, anthology, and he goes all the way back, and it's about humor and and kind of how that kind of this this second tradition, uh, you know, this alternate tradition almost that he was kind of outlining. And the Marquis de Sade, to your point, was one of these people who kind of employed this kind of dark humor, I guess we'd call it today. Um, and so. Yeah. So, yeah, the, to, to your point, yeah, the Marquis de Sade. And there's another kind of tedious, he can, he can like, you don't read the Marquis de Sade from front to back. At least I don't. I mean, I don't know what reading the 120 Days of Sodom would do to you. <laughs> it's a fun, you know, it's a fun party idea, though. If you have a group of friends and you have that book, you just like take drinks, take shots and just like pass it around. Well, um, I, I want to go to that party. <laughs> I want to go to that party. It's a fun party game. Well, that's awesome. Now, just as we wrap up here, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, is, uh, have we missed anything, uh, anybody? Does anybody have want to join up on stage and have a question for Sabato or, uh, or want to just talk about their influences? Otherwise, we are very close to wrapping up here. Oh, we have someone. All right. Purple Drank, welcome to the floor. Sir. Hey, GM, everybody. Just uh, getting through airport security. Sorry if you hear some announcements on there. Just enjoying the talk. I liked hearing about you guys' uh, influences on writing and things. I just wanted to uh, drop a couple of mine, I guess. I, I I would say they're probably pretty obvious, like Robert E. Howard, Conan works, and obviously the like Akira graphic novels and things like that. So a little bit more kind of levity on where I'm pulling my influences from. A lot of, um, especially stuff like Asimov and the three rules of robotics. Those That was one of the things that really just was super interesting to read kind of growing up and figuring out where we go in the future here and do those things in science fiction kind of create the future from these ideas, you know? Well, that is super cool. And I'm so glad you kind of added this whole other kind of area that we missed, you know, which is kind of like this, I guess for lack of a better term, like I'd call it very loosely like science fiction, you know, and uh, like you're saying, Robert E. Howard, I guess that's Conan, Right. And just like you have drank Frazetta there. I mean, I, I worked in a used bookstore, a comic store and bookstore, used bookstore slash comics uh, in Saskatoon when I was growing up. That was like a crucial part of the whole thing. So, you know, and just like uh, Runetune was saying with the author that he was mentioning, whose name is escaping me also right now. What was the name of the author you were mentioning, Runetune? The horror novelist? Yeah. H.P. Oh, Lovecraft. H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. Exactly. So, and there's Akira, but I, you know, in my universe, uh, Purple Drank, like, I don't see these as, you know, kind of like high art and low art. Like, to me, it's all on the same plane. And, you know, Akira, I think I only read the first, like, three issues or whatever, but that was astonishing. Like, I never saw the movie or anything, but it was an awesome work. And then even The Watchmen, I mean, I mean, that's a pretty it's a pretty elevated discourse there. There's talking about dub at the end of one issue, like in 1985 or whatever it was, 88. I don't remember, but yeah. I just, I just so remember, I, I know. you know, days where, especially in college being broke and wanting to go buy books. So I'd go sit in Barnes and Noble for like eight hours and just read through the graphic novel sections or read through science fiction sections and just go back day after day if a new book came out that I liked and I didn't have the money, I'd be there like three days, buy a coffee and just read through those sections. So uh, really enjoyed hearing this talk to kind of figure out what everybody else's influences were for sure. Well, I miss those stores too. Uh, I don't know if they have too many. I, I guess Berlin has one, but it's mostly in German. So I'm still working on that front over there. Um, but I'm so glad, Purple Drank, that you came on stage and uh, shared that with everyone. Where are you going, by the way, before you go? Actually, just returning home for the week now. I just did a little trip to Uray, Colorado to pick up a truck. And I drove some in Austin right now. And actually sitting right across from the Medici Coffee. So I'm going to probably get one right <laughs> after this. I'll post a picture up. It's pretty cool. How perfect. And final thing, do you have anything on the go? Uh, what, what's coming up? Uh, everything. With I got a lot going. Um, I drop. Uh, we changed the mint from the Pecos Pepe NFT collection on Ethereum to free, and it minted out pretty quickly, which was really exciting. Um, and now we just opened a Discord for that. So as soon as I get home this week, I'm gonna put some time into the Discord to kind of try to build the lore behind that NFT project, as well as. Just doing some counterfeit Pepe's right now, which is like a burn redeem mechanic, which, you know, it, it seemed to do pretty well. I'm pretty stoked on the reception and I have a lot of them kind of in the chamber ready to go when I get home to my manifold contract. So this week, lots of stuff coming. I am so glad I asked. Uh, so again, great to hear from you, Purple Drank. Don't be a stranger and share what you're up to because, yeah, I there's my twitter i miss so much and i can't put everything on notification you know i, I i'm sure you guys feel the same way uh sabato uh what do you have in the pipeline before we go well i have i have some new drawings um i got an edition like an open edition on manifold and this week i'm gonna be working on um some ai art um there's a so Maeve, the the AI mafia has a sh show with Super Chief that's going up in March, and 
um, as, as part of that collective, I, I get to submit one work. So I'm going to work on that today and tomorrow and get that, get, get that, get those AI juices flowing. Awesome. I can't wait to see that. And I just picked up your recent drawing exercise there, too. I've, as you know, I've been a huge fan of the series. And thank you for the edition number one of that drawing series. That was great, too. It's great just to see that stuff, you know. Well, thank you. And thank you for supporting my, my drawings and my art, you know, throughout these months and days. Like, it's been it's been super meaningful. Well, my pleasure, Sabato. And thank you for, you know, participating here and everything the, right back at you. So, Runtune, do you have any closing thoughts here before we go? Uh, no, this was this was great. Um, I think you know when when we approach like the subject of you know literature and and writers, you know a lot of times it's funny. It feels like these writers they all kind of reinterpret the same idea of a text and subtext and the work of art, the underlying meaning, and so on and so forth. And it was really cool to hear Sabatos and your uh, your interpretation of of authors and writers who've who've done that. Well, what a cool scene. And I never would have imagined I'd be talking about Dr. Costrel, Pataquisition. So in my universe, that was a complete success of a conversation if we went down that route, which is a very rich, exciting route. All right. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for all the listeners for joining us today. This is totally awesome. Thank you, Sabato, for the extended uh, discussion here. And Purple Drank always interesting and thank you as well and thank you runetune for the excellent co-hosting as usual all right guys thank you for joining me and until next time take care